Your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. It is alive, an anchor in the storm, a compass in the wild. Your word is a foundation built with truth, unmoving and undiminished. By its light, all is seen and known. On your word, we stand. Good morning. I'm really glad that you guys are here today, that you made it out safely with at least Snowpocalypse Part A um, in our neck of the woods. Um, I am really counting on the Lord to deliver a little bit more than what happened last night, really for the sake of my kids, um, because I feel like they need just one good snow that's worth playing in at some point um, in the winter season. But after that one good snow comes and they've played outside and we've wanted to build a snowman and all that happens, um, then I'm ready for springtime to hit for sure and weather to warm up just a bit. My name is Nick Allen. I'm really glad that you guys are here today and that you've chosen, for whatever reason, um, to worship with us this morning at Rolling Hills Belmont Heights Campus. We are, we're rounding out a series that we've been in since the start of the year called Set in Stone and what it means to build our lives on the foundation of, of God's Word, knowing that Jesus, at the conclusion of one of his longest messages recorded in Scripture, he tells us that if we hear the words of God and apply them to our lives, then we're like the wise man who built his house on a rock. When bad stuff happens, when the river rose, and when the winds blew, and when the waters, like, the house stood. And like, I want that in my life. Like, I want to know that I'm prepared for and ready for any kind of calamity, any kind of disaster, any kind of difficulty that comes my way. And, and so scripture is clear. If I want to be ready for those things, when, not if they come, then, then I need to build my life on the foundation of what this word says, this word of life that God has provided for us. A couple years ago, um, I read this book by a pastor down in Florida. His name is Matt Keller. And, and it's, he writes this book. And he gives it to me. I don't know if like some editor coached him to do this. I don't know if some, I, I, like, I don't know, publicist was like, oh, you got to title the book this. Because they thought that that was going to get more people to buy it. But this is a terrifying title for a book. Like any author to put this out, it's called The Key to Everything. If you put out a book called The Key to Everything, you better know that it's going to come under some scrutiny because people are going to, I bet it's not The Key to Everything. <laughs> because people are going to be examining this book to see how valid it is. To see, does this guy know what he's talking about? He wrote a book called The Key to Everything. And in it, I didn't really expect this, but I'm reading this book and I'm looking at, okay, The Key to Everything. He calls it teachability. Your ability to like learn something new and apply it to your life is the key to everything. And of course, he's citing Bible stories throughout, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount being one of them. But he gives us this mathematical equation. And I'm picking up the book and I'm reading it. Through. I was like, I did not know that Matt Keller was going to make us do math. But at the beginning of it, he says that this idea of teachability is actually a quotient that you can figure out in your life. Your level of teachability is first your desire to learn, like your desire to learn something new, multiplied by your willingness to change. Because like you can desire to learn um, water skiing, but, but never get in the water, and your teachability score is going to be really low. Like your desire to go water skiing can be at a 10, but if your willingness to get in the water is a 1, then your teachability score out of 100 is only 10, 
right? You like how I did that math. I kept it real easy for myself this morning. But like, you know, conversely, like if my desire to learn how to water ski is like an eight, it's not like the, the thing that I want to learn the most in life. But if I'm like at an eight in my desire to learn and I'm willing to get out there in the water and I'm willing to invest in some equipment and I'm willing to get somebody to teach me how to do this and I'm going to really try like like six weekends in a row, I'm going to be out on the lake. Never going to happen for a pastor, but just imagine this with me. Like six weekends in a row, I'm out there like, so my willingness to do something about it, I'll give myself a seven, eight times seven, oh, I should have done better numbers, 56. Like all of a sudden my teachability score is way over the 50 percentile. This idea of being willing to change based on the stuff that you learn, it, it makes you teachable. In society, we used to say that like somebody with the best resume, with the best degree, with the best scores on whatever test, with the best pedigree, with like just the best skill set, those are going to be the people that automatically get ahead and get jobs in life. Maybe not so much anymore. Now it's your willingness to learn and adapt and to grow that's going to go with you the furthest in life. Enter the Bible. Because you can have this desire to learn what Scripture says. You, you can have this, like, this hope that at the start of a brand new year, because it's January and we're making New Year's resolutions to like, stop doing stuff that's bad, like eating sugar after 9 p.m., and, and like, start doing stuff that's good, like waking up 30 minutes early because I'm going to go exercise in the morning. Like, I'm going to add scripture reading to that list. And there's a lot of people that are making resolutions right now to dive into the Word of God because they have a desire, and that desire may be at a 10, like a 10 point whatever. Like, my desire to learn from God's Word is high. But if your willingness to do anything about it is low, then your teachability score from Scripture is mute. And nothing is going to good happen in your life. We've talked about this before, and I continue to find ways to work this in because the Old Testament Hebrew word Shema, it's the most important confession of faith that, that any good Jew would have made. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That word here is the word Shema, and it's, it's a confession of faith to say, I trust you, I know you, and I'm going to follow you because that word is not just hear, it's also obey. It's the same word. Because for the God-fearing Jew, to hear the word of God was to obey the word of God. And if you didn't obey the word of God, you must have not heard it right. So he's going to repeat himself until you follow. And so all through scripture, we get this idea of hearing God's word and obeying God's word. Jesus said if we hear the words that he speaks and we put them into practice, then we're like the wise builders. And when he said that, the crowds were amazed because he taught as if he had authority. He wasn't just teaching what the words meant. He had authority over the words themselves. And so fast forward a, a moment in Jesus' life, past that Sermon on the Mount experience where he's teaching literal crowds that had assembled on this hill to be able to listen to what God had to say. He's actually hanging out with his disciples. So Jesus and, and the 12 are walking. It says in Matthew chapter 16, you can look this up in your Bibles. It's going to appear on the screen this morning as you read. It says in Matthew chapter 16, starting verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, I say that like a North Carolinian, like Caesarea Philippi. That's a wicked, wicked city. It's one of three cities in northern Israel that, that Herod, you remember Herod, he tried to kill baby Jesus. He didn't want baby Jesus to come. Like that Herod had literally dedicated to Rome. And he had dedicated these cities to Caesar so that he could see, receive some power from Rome. And he could see like, you know, some incidentals on the side. And this city was so wicked that good Jews were told not to go there. But several times in Jesus' ministry, he takes his disciples and he goes to Caesarea Philippi. And some significant ministry moments happen there. It says, he asked his disciples in verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? We talked about that last year. 
The idea of son of man, like what is this? Is it the idea that Jesus is just completely like, oh, he's born of a virgin. He's this human version of God. And we say, okay, he's completely man, but also completely God. So it's like God in flesh. That's great. But no, this is a knock back to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel where he gets this vision of a son of man. He's saying, oh, this is deity in flesh. So who do people say the son of man is? Who do people say this divine savior really is? He's asking them, what's my reputation? Like, what's out there in the world? Like, what are people saying behind my back? What are people talking about? What, what are they understanding? What's, what, what's the rumor mill about me? Like, there's no social media. You can't just look up your footprint or your faux pro and figure out what's going on or what people are talking about. But like, it's not likes, Jesus. Like, they're not clicking the thumb mark and giving the heart shape because they want to know what's going on. Like, yeah, he's asking his disciples, what do people say about me? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the These are all good things. Like one of the prophets, these are all real. Jesus, all of the things that are out there about you right now, we're telling Jesus all of the compliments. Now, I don't know in this moment if the disciples are holding back some of the negatives because they don't want to be the one to tell Jesus. Some people are saying bad stuff about you. But we're going to tell you all the good things right up front, Jesus. We're going to say John the Baptist, Elijah, others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Like These are great things for Jesus' reputation to be building. But then he looks at them and says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And if you keep going in that passage, he talks about how he's going to build his church on that confession of faith that Peter made and that Peter would be one of the instrumental apostles that started the local church movement that we're a part of today. But right there at the beginning, he's saying, what is my reputation? And we have people like that in our lives. Like people that have told us good things about Jesus, people that have told us the truth even about Jesus, but that's just reputation. That's somebody else's experience. And when you get to the heart of the matter, Jesus is not concerned with what other people in your life say about him. He's concerned with what you say about him. It's not your grandmother's faith. It's not your mother's faith. It's not our American little Southern Bible Belt culture's faith that matters. It's your faith. And it's not based on the reputation of Jesus. It's based on your relationship with God. And so Jesus responds to him and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This wasn't natural. This wasn't that somebody told you this. This wasn't your mother's testimony. This wasn't even just the experience that you guys heard. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. So at the end of the day, the, the truth that we know about Jesus and the truth that we accept from this word is the revealed word of God. The Bible is God's revealed word about himself. That's his character because he wants us to know him. About his son, that's our plan of salvation because he gave us Jesus as the sacrificial servant so that our sins could be atoned for. The Bible is God's revealed word about himself, about his son, and ultimately about his work in the world. That's the kingdom of God that, that we're invited to be a part of. And the fact that we have copies of this today, miraculous. When you think of, first of all, how old it is, in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and it confirmed for us that you and I, at least up until 1947, we had been reading the exact same Old Testament scriptures that Jesus himself read. 
And we needed that proof. God gave us that proof to say, you're reading my word. Because otherwise, we could attack it and say, well, this is just a copy that somebody gave us in, I don't know, the 1800s or the 900s or even the 400s. But no, no, no. We have scriptures from the Dead Sea Scrolls that say, this is a confirmed, the Old Testament is right for us. Literally thousands of copies of New Testament scriptures have been preserved for us. Like, when we look back at that and we see that we have copies of the New Testament scriptures dating back to the year 300, all the other classic books that we read, like Homer or Odyssey or all these other like history books, like 900 AD would be the earliest, latest copy we have of those. The Bible has withstood. 175 years before Jesus was born, this, 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 this emperor, Antiochus Epiphanes, he came to power and he defiled the temple and he ordered that Christians, or not Christians, but he ordered that Jews be executed and he ordered that their scriptures be banned. And this like revolter, Judah, Maccabean, the Maccabean revolt, they, they, they won. And scripture was preserved until the time of Jesus. And then after the time of Jesus, this Roman emperor came to power, Diocletian, and he ordered that all the Christians be killed. And at the penalty of death, that they would not worship and claim Jesus as the way he ordered their copies of scripture and the letters that they've been writing to be burned and banned. And the very next emperor, Constantine, it's God's providence, legalized Christianity and ordered that 50 new copies of scripture be written down. God preserved his word so that you and I would have it. And all over the world, it's not just for us. Obviously, English is a translated language out of the Hebrew and the Greek. But it's preserved for people all over the planet in 2,000 plus languages that we have access to so that people can read the revealed word of God. It's truth about himself and about his son and ultimately about his kingdom work in the world. It makes this Bible so much more than words. So much more than words on a page. And that's because the Bible is, it's in your notes this morning. It's more than a book. It's living. And it's at work in our lives. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active. If you're a person who likes to underline like words or phrases or, or key things in your Bible, underline Hebrews 4.12. For the Bible is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. What God says is that his word cuts to the core. It goes right to the core, the heart of the matter, why it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Bible doesn't just reveal the truth about God. It reveals the truth about us individually and collectively as a people. It does it because it's alive and it's active in us. That word alive is, is the Greek word zao. Like you would spell it Z-A-O, like a D-Z, zao. And one of the definitions of it is living water, having vital power in itself and exerting the same upon the soul. That in and of itself, the Bible has power and it exerts that power on the soul. It's where we get that next word, that it's, that it's active. It's, it's the Greek word energes, and we think of energy when we read that word. It's the combination of two other Greek words, ah, uh, and it just means with, and ergon, work, or energy, or force. It's this idea that the Bible has force in our lives. It, it works on us. It, it makes it so much more than a book penetrates to the core of who we are. If you're in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the next verse says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. He sees all and knows all. 
And this revealed word from him that, that cuts to our heart, it lays us bare before him. That's literally the Greek word for neck hold, laid bare. It means we're at his mercy. And that our lives are to be vulnerable to and accountable to this word from God. That means when we read it, reading it means being ready to change. Like simply by engaging the act of reading this word, we're saying to great God Almighty, I am ready by reading your word for something to happen in my life. I'm ready for something to change about me because I'm interacting with these words of life. John Piper says that we read the Bible naturally in a supernatural way. What does he mean by that? Well, reading the Bible naturally means that we have the ability natural ability as human beings to to see these words to hear these words that, that somebody in your life taught you how to read my wife is a homeschool mom um yeah shout out you think we're the cool family now you're just ready for that like we're a homeschool family and, and she has done the in my mind miraculous work of teaching two out of our three children how to read and the third one don't judge he's only six like he's really learning he's doing a great job like reading is hard stuff and it's a foundation for literally everything that we do in life, but it's completely natural that God has given us, all human beings, this natural ability to like know words and to understand language and to be able to put them together in actual sentences, our ability to understand what these words say and what they mean and to evaluate them at some level, our, our ability to write down our thoughts, people, some of your journalers, like people that like read something and then jot down what they think afterwards, like that's part of your natural ability, just by virtue of being a human being who has the capacity to learn and to understand things, God has given those things to, to all of us. And it's that natural power that you use to read Southern Living Magazine. That natural power that you use to read Harry Potter. That natural power that you use to read the instruction manual on the espresso machine that you got for Christmas. But none of those things, the manual for the espresso machine that you got for Christmas, or the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child script that you just got that you want to read, or even the Southern Living magazine that arrives at your door once a month, none of those is Tao. None of those is alive. And none of those is active in your life enacting energy and force on who you are. Not like scripture. We read the Bible with the natural ability that God has given us, but then something supernatural happens when we do. 2 Timothy 2.7 says, reflect on what I am saying. Paul writes to his little apprentice, reflect on what I'm saying. Use your natural ability, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Use whatever natural ability you have to comb through this scripture, to read this letter, and to think about the things that you're being taught, and then something supernatural will happen in your life as a result, because the great God of this universe wants you, by the power of his spirit, to understand what these words mean so that you can apply them to your life and be labeled wise. So people want to know, how is it that we study scripture? How, how do we read what these words say and apply them to our life in a regular way? Like, what? Different is supposed to happen about the way that we read this book as opposed to the way that we read any other book that we come in contact with. So we came up with this little, like all of our campuses this morning are, are, are putting out this whole plan. Just these four simple words that you can remember every time you approach Scripture. And the first one is reach. It's reach for the Word of God before you reach for anything else. 
And like the one caveat to that in the morning, if you're going to be a person who reads the Bible in the morning, like the one caveat that we would give you would be coffee. Like if you need to reach for coffee before you reach for your Bible, that one might be okay. But, but reach for God's word first. And, and not just on the daily, but I would say reach for God's word first when, when you're in a crisis, when you're facing difficulty. We don't want this word to be a last resort. We want it to be a first course of action. Jesus, in the, the book of John, chapter 6, he's, he's walking with his disciples. And if you read, it's a long chapter in the book of John. And when you work your way through it, you're going to realize that Jesus said some pretty bizarre things. He started telling people, like, if you're really going to follow me, like, really follow me? If you're really going to come after me, you're going to have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. We're teaching and the people started to, to literally fall away. The crowds that he had amassed, like, literally started to be like, oh, nope, that's too much. That one, he crossed a little bit of a line. I'm going home now. How many times have you and I read Scripture, and, and we've come literally toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye with a passage of Scripture that we don't like, we don't agree with? It doesn't, does it fit with our American culture? It doesn't fit with what we think makes us loving. It doesn't fit with what we think makes us tolerant. It doesn't fit with what we think that Jesus would say or do, but we come face-to-face with a passage of Scripture, Old Testament or New, and we want to back away from it because we think, Mm-mm, that one's too hard. You must not mean what you're actually saying, God, because I can't swallow that. And it's in that moment, like the crowds in John chapter 6, that we kick the dust off and walk away from Jesus. Jesus, towards the end of that chapter, he, he looks at his disciples and he asks them point blank, does this offend you? In verse 66, it says, from this time, many of his disciples, all those crowds that had come, turned their back and no longer followed him. Jesus looks back at the 12 and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter did what Simon Peter always, like he was the first one to speak up. I imagine him front row, third grade, every time the teacher asked a question, ooh, 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 like desiring to be called on. Simon Peter speaks up boldly, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. So we're going to reach for you, Jesus, before we reach for anything else. We're going to look at your path and your plan before we try to look at all the other alternative routes that the world may present before us. We're going to go your way first. So, so reach for the word. Before you reach out for anything else, reach for Scripture. The next one is just to rely on God's Spirit. Rely on God's spirit to be your guide and the spirit of God himself to reveal to you truth. In John chapter 16, Jesus said this, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. No other book has that. No other, no other plan has that. No other step-by-step guide has the spirit of the living God working through it to help us understand and apply it to our lives. So we're going to reach for the word of God, and we're going to trust and rely that somehow, even when we come up against a part of it that we don't like, even when we come up against a part of it that we don't understand, that the spirit of God himself is going to breathe wisdom and knowledge and understanding into our lives so we can know his truth. And so his truth can set us free. The next R, you can guess it, it's read. You're going to read the passage. And be careful not to skim. I'm a skimmer. Oh my goodness. I can 
literally count into the hundreds the number of books that I've skimmed in my life. And for whatever reason, God's given me ability to be able to like, I don't know, skim a book about missions or skim a book about um, like a prayer life or just skim some great Christian literature. I'm not much of a fiction reader, but if I was, I could skim through it and at the end of it tell you kind of what the plot and what the course of action is and who the key characters are. But don't skim the Bible. Don't, Don't skim this truth. Really, really read it. Make notes. Ask questions. Underline key ideas and key words. Even memorize parts of scripture. Ultimately, that's what it means for us to meditate on God's word, to, to say it and to repeat it over, over, and over again, to commit it to our memory. Why? Psalmist said so that we might not sin against God. That idea of hiding God's word in our heart is really committing God's word to memory. Why? So that we won't sin against him. We know that we're going to be sinners because we're people, but the recourse that God has given us, the weapon against the sin in our life is the scripture that God has written for us. So we're going to reach for it, rely on God to teach us what it says, and then actually read it, spend time with it, study and pour over scripture. And that last R is one that we can't ignore. It's to respond. Like, What is it that God's word is calling you to do? We're going to respond in obedience. That word shema, where we get the word hear, that word shema, where we understand the word obey, it's where we get names in the Bible too. The name Simeon in Old Testament scripture, it's a variation of the word shema. The name Simon for Simon Peter, it's a variation of the word shema. Simon literally means he who hears. It's the name of that six-year-old that I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, Simon, my little guy. When he was born, we named him Simon James. Simon, because it's a Bible name, and Susan really liked it. And, and James, because that's my middle name. It's my dad's name. It's Susan's dad's name. It's just a, a family name that passes down throughout lots of different parts of our family. And so we picked this life verse for him, James 1.22. It says this. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. You've got to do what it says. So, so, so my little guy, our prayer for him, your name is Simon. It means he who hears, but we don't just want you to hear God's word. We want you to take that middle name into account. We want you to do what God's word says. We want you to respond to it. And we want our response to God, that response that we offer to him because of his word, to always be obedience. Why? Because the words that are contained in this book, these words of life, they are the key to everything. They're the key to everything. And it is the right, it's in your notes, it's the right and ultimately the responsibility of every believer to read this word and to unlock those keys and to claim this as real and right and good in our lives. When we don't, When we don't read these words and take responsibility to study scripture for ourselves, you're basing what you know about Jesus on his reputation from somebody else rather than a deepening personal relationship with him. Arguably, Apostle Paul wrote half of the New Testament and we would not count for ourselves a stronger, more committed apostle of Jesus Christ in faith, planting churches and spreading this movement that God began. In Acts chapter 
17, he, he, he comes across this group of people. They're the Berean Jews, this group of Jews committed to Old Testament scripture, committed to prophecy, committed to the history of their people, and committed to the work that God was doing in their lives. And in Acts 17, 11, we read these words. It says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Paul's traveling between Thessalonica and Athens, and he encounters these people He says, for they received the message, the message that Paul brought about Jesus, with great eagerness. But see, that was just Jesus' reputation based on the words of Paul. What'd they do next? They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The Berean Jews were not going to base their faith in God and their trust in Jesus on just what Paul said. They examined the scriptures for themselves to to see if the message that he brought was in fact true. I want to be a Berean. Somebody that reaches and trusts and knows God's word more than anything else. Relies on the power of God to explain to me and to unpack for me what this is. Knowing that, that this word that I read has the key to life. A full life, an abundant life, a wise life, a life built on the rock so that when the rain comes, I'm ready for it, life. Not based on somebody else's words or reputation about who Jesus is to them, but discovering who Jesus is for me. You discovering who Jesus is for you. It's why God preserved these words for us. The end of John, he he just says over and over again a couple times, Hey, there's a whole lot more to tell you about Jesus than just this. Jesus did a whole lot more and he said a lot more than we could have written down in these books. But John says, these are given so that you may have eternal life. These scriptures are given to us so that we would have life and so that we would know how to live it. God has a plan for you. A really specific way for you to live in this world that he's created for you to live in. And it starts and includes um, keen understanding of what his word says and why on earth he said it so that you and I could know his son and so that we would know how to live. Would you pray with me? Maybe just take a moment to, to bow your heads and close your eyes. And really, for just a moment, ask. And maybe this is not an ask that you've made before, but just utter it in your mind or or mumble under your breath. Ask the, the Holy Spirit of God to work in you, to speak to you, to call out to you, to, to pour into you, to wash over you, and and, and to make you a student, to make you into a follower who, who, who desires to know these words and apply them to your life. And Father, our prayer today as a people, um, collectively for sure, but even more so individually, um, the people that sit in these seats, the, the, the guy that stands on this platform, is that we would just have a hunger for your word, that you would place inside of us a desire for your word, 
and that you would equip us with the willingness to apply your word. We want to be taught by you, God. We trust that your word alone has the key to eternal life and to faith and to wisdom. And we desperately need to be a people who follow you. If you're somebody who wants to talk more about this, if you're wrestling with questions of faith or thoughts about what it means to be a person who who buys into all of this, if you still have questions about scripture and how different stories, how crazy passages, how unfathomable miracles could possibly be true, man, I want to talk to you. I'll be available today in the lobby at the close of the service. And I'd love to just chat with you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus and to know and trust that this word is true. If you're somebody that's ready to take a next step in your life to be, to be baptized or to unite with this church, then find me, talk to me, and I'm so excited to walk with you and, and show you what it means to be a committed, life-giving believer in this particular fellowship of Christians. God, you are so good, and we tell you today that we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. At this time, I want to invite ushers to come forward. Um, This is an opportunity for us to give back. Um, It's a part of our worship experience, and one of the ways that we tell God that we trust him. If we can trust him with our finances, we can trust him with just about anything else. Um, And so we tell you today, God, that you have blessed us so tremendously, um, and we want you to take the resources that we give, multiply them for your good use, and, and do it to serve people in this community so that more people can know Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for these truths. Um, Thank you for this people and the opportunity to worship you today with giving. Take the gifts and the manner in which they're given as an act of worship. Total submission, total faith and belief in who you are. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.